So good. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today, starting in verse 13, and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us, that we can rejoice in you alone, that you are a firm foundation for our souls, that you give us life, you give us freedom, you give us hope that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today, all those gathering in your name across Australia and the world. Lord, we seek to magnify you. We want to hear you. We want to do your will. We want to know you more. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts, each one, that you would minister your word to us that we would walk in your ways and please you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 is where we're going to start uh, introducing it with, what you don't know can hurt you. Chemicals and solvents, they have usually little words on them that give you very important information of how to properly use them. Uh, like avoiding skin t- contact, mixing things. I remember my mother cleaning the bathroom. She's a very zealous cleaner. And she mixed bleach with the powdered scouring stuff, and it makes a fume. And she's like, whoa, pretty overcome. And uh, probably didn't read the packaging very well. Um, and years ago, I had a friend that was doing some silk screening, and I helped him one day. And uh, the ink was really hard to get off of the screens. I don't know if you've ever done that. But... Trying to clean them was a pain, and we found this stuff that was mech. Now, it wasn't mech. It was M-E-K, I was later told. But this mech, it was working wonders. We were just washing our hands in it. We were rubbing everything. I mean, we were swimming in the stuff. Come to find out, I was telling my dad, yeah, we're using mech. Mech? You mean methyl ethyl ketone? I was like, okay. So that stuff's pretty hazardous. You shouldn't be having it on your hands. You shouldn't be breathing the vapors. It doesn't damage to your nervous system and your internal organs. And all the while, I was thinking it was the wonder stuff, you know. <laughs> this is terrific. It, it just works. It works. But there's a, there was a safe way to handle it. We were not handling it that way. But when I found out that MEK is to be handled a certain way, when I saw people just, you know, bathing in it, I would say, that is not safe. You need to cover up. So I could help others then. I could be protected and help others. And knowing God and his will helps us to walk in his ways. It also helps to keep us from error and others from dangerous uh, teachings. It helps us to be fruitful in every good work, that we increase in his knowledge. This is God's will that we read about in one uh, early, earlier on in this first chapter. When we're first born again, we're largely, you would agree, ignorant of God. We're ignorant of his will, his his promises, his purposes. There's a lot we don't understand. And so he's given us his word so that we can know him, that we can know what's the how we can please him. And in this letter, Paul stresses the divine nature of Jesus, because in that time there were people who weren't giving Jesus the 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 praise and the honor that he deserves as God made flesh. He's the one who forgives us, who saves us, who redeems us, who has atoned for our sins with his blood. He's the one who does that and so much more. And knowing and believing who Jesus is, it is critical to our spiritual growth and our walk with the Lord. Because the world is filled with imposters 
and deceivers. And Jesus says that many false prophets have gone into the world. And the only way we can know truth from error is to hold to the scripture and what God has said. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. And I hope you guys brought a hearty appetite today because there's a lot here. It says, He who has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. When we were in sin, we were under the power of darkness. We were under the power of Satan. And God has delivered us by His grace. We haven't just been freed or delivered from Satan, but notice it says we've been conveyed or translated into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just like an inheritance is passed from a parent to a child or to the one they deem uh, appropriate, so the blessings and the riches of the kingdom of God have passed to us. We have received them already. We have that inheritance. We were in darkness. We were heading to hell and destruction. But after being born again through faith in Jesus, we are part of God's family and we are heaven bound. And having been born again, we now bear a resemblance to God, to Jesus Christ, because the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, has filled us. Sin is contrary to our new nature. Uh, you look at a, a, a parent and a child and you say, I see the resemblance. And after we're born again, we have that in doing what's right, in desiring to love God and to do His will. It's God that works in us, the Bible says, both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. And so there's no boasting when we've done the right thing. Because even when you want to do the right thing, it's because God's put that desire in you. It's a new desire. And the ability to do that thing is by His grace as well. He's the one who empowers us to do that. And so there's no place for boasting because it's God's work in and through our lives. And we're not perfect we are, as Paul did, to lay, us, lay aside our past successes or our failures to press toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus because he is our pursuit. Now, verse 13 it has a really important transition from God the Father in verse 12 that he has been the subject, but now there's been a switch in verse 13 to Jesus Christ. In Colossian and other places, Christ was not giving, being given the glory of being God. He was seen as a lesser kind of emanation from God. He wasn't either fully man or he wasn't fully God. And either of those heretical views, they deny Christ his true uh, identity as God made flesh. And so Paul is going to lay out a very clear revelation of who Jesus is and what he's done. And there's so many actions that Jesus has done for us here. And there were many people who discounted what Jesus did. And they believed that God really can't be known except if you read certain materials or if you follow certain practices or if you are an ascetic, which means that you, uh, you fast for weeks on end or you flog yourself. Right? You, you deny yourself, you make your life really uncomfortable in exchange for spiritual knowledge. And so people would be, go into a nunnery or become hermits or they would sit on a pole or they would deny themselves um, comforts 
in an attempt to reach God or to connect with God. And there were some who also placed angels or other prophets at the same level or even above Jesus. That to really reach God, you had to pray to these angels. You had to do these things to have an audience with God to even start to know about God. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He's also a man. He had to be a man if he was going to save men because he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteous of God in him. No one can reach the Father. No one can know the Father except through the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only way that we can be saved because he is one with the Father, the Son of God. As we'll read, verse 15, he is, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Paul's teaching Jesus is the exact image, the manifestation of the invisible God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, if you want to know about the Father, here I am. And he said at a point, I am. So he identified with the Father as being one with him. And this use of likeness here, where it says, he is the image or likeness of the invisible God. It's not used in the sense that God created man in his own image, meaning that man bears a resemblance to God because he's breathed into us eternal souls. And we have a, a choice, right? We have the freedom of choice even as God can choose. The word that's used here is icon, which means likeness, figure, or representation. And there's another word, it's homoiama, which is likeness. It's found in a couple other places. And um, for instance, Romans 8, 3, it says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is homoiama, which is the likeness of men. So he bore a resemblance to men, but he was not the, he is actually the image, icon of the father. So there's two different words used for image. Jesus bears resemblance to man because he was sent as a man, but in likeness, he is the image, the icon of the Father. The real deal, God made flesh. Gusick wrote in his commentary, the stronger word icon used here proves that Paul knew Jesus is God just as God the Father is God. Then it goes on to say that he's the firstborn of all creation. Where a lot of people go wrong is to think that this means that he was born as in created at some point. That would make him lesser than the eternal, almighty God who created all things. Jesus is that God. He is the word spoken of in the Gospel of John who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Context in this passage, it helps us understand the firstborn over all creation makes Jesus superior to all that has been created, and that's all. He could not have created himself. He existed before, and he created all things. He's superior to all created beings and angels. We read in Hebrews 1, 5, and 6. 
For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. So Jesus is not just an angel. There's a big gap, a massive, infinite gap between an angel and Jesus, because Jesus is God made flesh. Everything seen, everything unseen has been made by Jesus for Jesus. Thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, having created all, all are subject to him. He is, he has all authority in heaven and earth. The Father gave that to him and he wields that power and authority. All, this whole earth, it's going to end. Everything that's been created is going to fade away. It's going to be dissolved. But Christ's kingdom, it's from everlasting, an eternal kingdom. So Jesus is not just a man. He's God. One, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Again, speaking of Jesus, that is the, the subject. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross." Jesus existed before time even began. I like what it says in Micah 5.2. We know that this speaks of Christ and his birth in Bethlehem. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So Jesus, who is eternal, who is God, the second part of the Godhead, he would enter time in the womb of Mary through the Holy Spirit. And that's where he would grow and then be revealed as God made flesh where people could behold his glory. Paul says, in Jesus, all things consist. So everything that's made, every star in the heavens, every cell in your bodies, every atom that is those that smallest indivisible thing that we can see um, or we actually can't see it but some people have seen it and they've told us about it he made that and he holds it together he causes them to consist and to endure the movement of heavenly bodies, the laws of nature, the force of gravity is a constant relative to mass. The elements on the periodic table, they're all stable because Jesus makes them that way. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, they were all present and active in creation because there's one God, there's one revealed in three persons. Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is eternal, the firstborn of the dead, the first raised to life, glorified according to the new covenant. 
He created the first man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, breathed into him a living soul. But Jesus became the Savior and Redeemer through the new covenant in his own blood. So Jesus shed his blood so we could be forgiven when we repent and trust in him. And in everything, it says he's to have preeminence, which means supreme rule over all. Like there's no one else beside him. He is God. He is ruler. He is king of kings, Lord of lords. Now, many in their devotion to God have gone in a lot of directions. There are some people who believe that um, there's many, let's say, roots and branches to the tree. And as long as you have a right heart in pursuing them, you're okay. But we know that the Bible teaches our hearts are desperately wicked above all things, that we can easily be deceived and that many deceivers have gone into the world, and a lot of people show devotion in praying to Mary or to saints, to angels, having loyalty to particular prophets, when only Jesus is worthy of honor. If you pray to Mary, if you pray to the saints, you are talking to the hand, you are talking to the foot, you are not speaking to the head, and we know that if you were to speak to my hand, my hand isn't going to hear you, and my feet can't respond to you, you must talk to my head. I ha you have to get my attention because I'm getting old and I don't hear so well. So it, if I don't pick up on that first part of your sentence or know that you're speaking to me, and maybe you can identify with this, I ne you need to have my attention. And the way you're going to get my attention is when my, my eyes are looking at you and I'm like, oh, lip reading, this is helpful. <laughs> I didn't even know that I lip read, but there we go. We speak to the head, Jesus Christ, because he hears us and he answers us. He is the head of the body. We don't talk to the hand to speak to the head, to communicate with him. He hears us because he is the head. It's a blasphemous insult to pray to deceased relatives or relics or angels, thinking that through them you can have an audience with God. The Holy Spirit always glorifies Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ always glorifies the Father. And they, he shows us what godly submission looks like. And we're to follow that example unto him because he is our Savior. He is our King. So there's no pastor, no preacher, no priest or prophet who magnifies themselves or their ministry and says, you need to know this to know God. Just yesterday I was walking through my neighborhood and I saw people going two by two distributing literature. And in that literature, it's going to say, this is how you, you, you may have the Bible, you may have these other things, but if you really want to know how to understand the Bible, if you really want to know how to get to God, you need to read this. You need to go this direction. And this is the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. There is no other way. He is the head. We don't pray to anyone else for that purpose because he is that one mediator between God and men. Think about it this way. If you want prompt action concerning a customer service issue, let's just say Optus Telstra, something we've all had to, you know, that, that music that you hear for like two hours and then you, it's just in your head forever. Five years later, you call back and, oh, I know this song, <laughs> it's really annoying. So when you, you dial that number, would you rather have an automated response that's just a robot, press 5, press 3, press 7, it's just like Windows help. It doesn't really help you. It just takes you in a circle. 
or a person at a call center who has no authority and really doesn't know anything about your situation, an ex-employee who's a bit sour on the company, actually, but understands how it used to work, or the actual manager, somebody who can do something. It's pretty obvious, right? I want that robo answer. No, we, we, and the thing that's so crazy is, on a human level, we cannot imagine speaking to the regional director or the, cor or the CEO or the owner of a company to solve our problem. We, we, can't, we don't even imagine that we have that sort of access. But with God, there is no pecking order. There is no chain of command. There's just him. We go straight to the head. We go right to Jesus Christ. He's the one who's saving us. He's the one who created us and who knows us. He's the one who's able to forgive us. And we don't have to go through any of these other things to try to reach God. Because he has come to us and he's invited us to speak with him, to know him. Praying to angels or to saints in hope of reaching God is like using an outdated fax number to an ex-employee like it's a waste of time. And it's insulting to God. There's no magic words. There's no scripted prayers necessary. Just faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our almighty God our creator, the head of the church, you can go straight to him. Like, I'm nowhere in that chain of command. You go to Jesus. Why does Jesus have the preeminence? It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus has all authority in heaven or on earth. He is one with the Father. In Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. As it says further on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It is as plain as can be for those who have faith in what God has said. It's Jesus who has reconciled all things to God on heaven and earth. He has made peace by shedding his blood on Calvary. He has, we were estranged from God. We were far from God, but he's brought us near through the shed blood of Jesus. We've been brought into agreement with God who now fills us and we are one with him crazy. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Isn't it wonderful to know that God has never been alienated from man? It's man who's been alienated from God. God's always been able to speak. He's always been able to reach out and to bless and to show his love in various ways. And it's been consummated in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, demonstrating his love. 
We were born with that corrupt nature inherited from Adam. Jesus became flesh, so if we repent, we can trust in him and be born again. Now holy, blameless in God's sight. No longer aliens, but children of God. We were dead in sins, but now we're alive. We've been reborn. We were like, and, and this is a very bad example. It's a poor example of what God has done. We were like orphaned refugees hoping for scraps from the, his servant's table. And now he has given us a place setting at the table where he says, you come and dine anytime. There is always a place for you in my house forever as adopted children of God not the little street rats anymore. We're his. We deserve to be on the street. We were dead, but he has brought us back. Now, there's several ways that if can be used in Greek. The if in verse 23, where it says, if indeed you continue, it's a first class, class conditional usage. It means assuming that or if as I trust for the sake of argument. By virtue of the new, new birth, Paul believed that people would continue in faith steadfastly. He was confident that the condition would be fulfilled. He is not suggesting that our salvation depends upon the efforts of our flesh to continue. Because as it says in 1 Peter, we are kept. He keeps us. It's by His grace that we are saved. It's by His grace we continue in the faith. Having been saved, we are to make an effort to follow Jesus and to do the things that please him. What's implied by what Paul says is the possibility we could be deceived and we could start well, but be hindered in following Jesus. We could be deterred. We could be distracted. We could follow after a false gospel that cannot save. We went through this in Galatians because many false prophets have gone into the world. We have totally secure salvation in Jesus Christ, yet there is a way we can willingly divorce ourselves from his truth to seek another, to seek another savior, a false gospel that only endangers our souls. Back to Galatians in 1 verse 6 through 8, I'll just read it. It says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who has called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who would trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So there is the one gospel. There is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's an exclusive, single way to salvation. And there are other ways or supposed ways but there's none but one. None of them can save. So those who trust in Christ will be kept by the power of God through faith, and therefore we ought to make, we should be diligent to make our calling and our election sure. To be examining ourselves and saying, am I following the scripture? What the Bible says. It's possible to respond favorably to the gospel, but not have a regenerated heart or life. If you turn to Acts 8, we see a really good example of this. Simon the sorcerer. 
Paul says that for years, this guy named Simon, he made himself out to be a great man of God in the city of Samaria before Philip the evangelist came. And he, he exerted a great amount of influence over the people there through sorcery and witchcraft. Philip the evangelist comes to Samaria, he's preaching the kingdom of God and the gospel. People are being healed, demons are being cast out, and Simon's like, whoa, this is for real. It says that he believed and he was baptized. So he believed. He was baptized. Peter and John in Jerusalem, they hear of this great revival in Samaria, and they come out to lay hands on the people and to pray with them. And when Simon saw that whenever they laid hands and prayed for people, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, he offered them money. He said, hey, I'd like this power that if I lay hands on somebody, they'll, you know, be filled with the Spirit. What did Peter say in Acts chapter 8, verse 20? But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. It seems Simon had not been born again, that he, there were things about salvation he did not understand. He thought that things could be bought when it was only received as a free gift from God. He saw Peter discerned in him bitterness, and he was bound by iniquity. And if these things are existing in the life of someone without repentance, then that's not a mark of God. Because if, if someone who, like, like Peter, when he just realized he had denied Jesus, what did he do? He wept bitterly. He was broken for it. He had that heart of humility before God. Now, there's hope for Simon here. He says, repent, man. I see that you're full of bitterness and you're poisoned by iniquity. If you'll repent, there's salvation for him. But notice what Simon said. He asks Peter to pray for him. He wanted Peter to put in a good word with him, with God, instead of going to Jesus. Instead of going to God himself, he's like, hey, hey, I, I don't want any bad things to happen to me. You pray for me. So again, he just, there was something not right. He didn't quite understand. So that's why not knowing something can hurt you. But he knew everything he needed to be born again and saved. He had seen the power of the gospel. He had heard the truth of it. Now he's being rebuked and corrected. And it's for him to repent and to say, wow, yeah, I, I've got this totally wrong. He may have been believed that Jesus is the Son of God. He may have been baptized. But there was yet a change that needed to happen. There's people and groups today, they offer knowledge. They offer spiritual power, even salvation for a price. But forgiveness, salvation, deliverance, that's from Jesus alone. He's the only one. Back to Colossians 1, verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, 
To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In prison, Paul suffered many things. He's not suggesting in any way that the suffering of Jesus was insufficient or lacking for his salvation, that he needed to suffer so he could be saved. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is the head of the body, and since we are part of the body, when we suffer for the sake of Christ, he also suffers along with us. His soldiering on in Christ, despite persecution, it edified the body, it glorified Jesus. It showed the reality of Christ's power in Paul. And so it was beneficial. Other people benefited from Paul persevering through tough times and through those trials. Ascetics, they, they would suffer by um, self-flagellation. They would starve them, their bodies. They would seek for them to advance in holiness. It wasn't about other people. You know, when they whipped themselves and they... They said all these prayers over and over. It was for them, not for other people. But Paul is saying he, he considered others, and he's thinking of Christ in his suffering. There's been many people in Scripture who, according to the will of God, have suffered many things. Think of Job, where God allowed Satan to, to ruin him, really, in a lot of ways, to lose his family, his uh, his material goods, his home, yet a double blessing followed. And how many of us have been greatly encouraged by Job's suffering? The things that he was thinking and the way God responded to him, it's been a source of encouragement and blessing for many. Uh, building a ship for a, over 100 years, that's a lot of work and a lot of pain, a lot of sacrifice on behalf of Noah, but think of the benefits that we have received through human life being preserved and animal life. Righteous Lot, he suffered being surrounded by ungodly people, but God delivered him from death when the cities fell. Jesus, he suffered when Satan filled the heart of Judas and betrayed him, and he was wrongfully accused as an evildoer. Yet through his sacrifice, through his suffering on Calvary, all who believe can be born again and go to heaven forever. And he was raised in glory. Paul had, it says, a messenger of Satan that was sent to afflict him. He said, three times I prayed that this messenger of Satan would be gone from me, this thorn in the flesh. And Paul doesn't pray to angels. I want you to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 8. Now, I can never say why God allows suffering in your life. I do not claim to know these things that are beyond me. But I know that when we suffer for Christ's sake, it will accomplish God's purposes in some way, whether in this life or in the life to come, not just in your life, but to the benefit of others as well. It's amazing how God can redeem even suffering for good, but he, he does and he will. I can encourage you in that, to that end. But see what God said to Paul. God had revealed a lot to Paul. 
he had taken him up into heaven and he had seen some things of God that he said, it's unlawful for me to even talk about. He had great revelation of God. It wasn't because he whipped himself. It wasn't because of anything that he did. It's by the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. So after praying about this thing, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs in persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When Paul prayed, who answered him? God answered. Look, it's in red, isn't it? Isn't that cool? Jesus spoke to him. He prayed to God and Jesus answered him. It's because he's speaking to God when he speaks to Jesus. That's pretty awesome. He doesn't pray to angels. He sought the presence of God himself and God answered him. Whether free or in prison, whether he had stuff or he was in need, he's like, I rejoice because of Jesus. His grace is sufficient. And Paul set himself to do a task that God had called him to back in Colossians to fulfill the word of God and sharing the mystery of the gospel to all who would believe that God had broken down that middle wall between Jew and Gentile, that we've become one through Jesus and he is our head and we have salvation and a new life and a new covenant through him. It was God's will not just to save the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Paul didn't know God's will for his life until Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He had no idea. He was going to attack Christians. And then Jesus wanted him to make more Christians and to be a Christian himself. He had no idea that that's what God, God's plan was. And knowing Jesus was the key to Paul understanding the calling that God had upon his life and fulfilling his word uh, to share the truth. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. He's like, I'm, gonna, I'm sharing this to everybody. Christ in you. He's the hope of glory. In our day of social media and followers and sharing and likes, we might think that a lot of people need to realize and agree that we're doing God's will before it really matters. But see, Paul, he's in prison. And he's writing this letter that was hand-delivered to a church far away. And who, how could he have even known how God would use a handwritten letter that we would be reading almost 2,000 years later and being instructed about the truth of God and knowing Jesus? There's suffering that you guys go through in your own lives that nobody knows about. Nobody knows the tears that you shed in prayer. Nobody knows the longings of your heart to see people saved and how you pray that others would know God. When you endure in obedience to the will of God for your life, whether anybody knows about it or agrees with it, there will be reward because it is Christ whom you serve, the hope of glory, who will accomplish everything he intends, even if... Nobody seems to care, 
and nobody, you get very little response. Think of Jeremiah. I've been reading through his life, and they go, tell us the word of God, Jeremiah. We want to hear the word from the Lord. Okay, the word from the Lord is don't go to Egypt. Oh, we're not going to do that. We're going to Egypt. Well, you asked me, and I told you God's word, and nobody wants to listen. And Jeremiah, you're coming with us. On and on. He spoke God's word, but people didn't listen to him. But the fact that they didn't listen, does that mean he's without reward before God? No, because he obeyed God. And his suffering through saying the truth and not being heard, he will be rewarded as will we, as we do so in obedience to Jesus Christ. Christ in us. Verse 28, him, Jesus, we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul preached Jesus to make disciples of Jesus, not using Jesus to draw followers after himself. He says, I've warned and I've taught. Those are two uh, necessary components to solid preaching. Warning is to put in mind or to caution, and he instructed people concerning the truth because there was a lot of error in the world. There were, a lot of, it, there were a lot of deceptions, and I think in time have multiplied. There's nothing new under the sun, though. There's one way, truth, and life, and that's Jesus. The truth hasn't changed, and anything that's not of Christ, anything that's not Jesus, who says this is a way to God, we can know that's false. You don't have to know every doctrine of a cult or a false teaching um, or a philosophy or a religion of the world to know what's the right way to salvation. We only need to know the right way, the one way, which is through Jesus, faith in him. Every other way, it's an accursed way. It's a false way. Jesus is the way. And there's countless amounts of ways that people have tried to work to find favor with God or work to gain salvation, to sacrifice their way to God, to offer money to get something of benefit. But Jesus only gives freely by faith when we trust in him. Paul's working to provide wisdom. He's working to warn people. He wants to make people understand who God is and the things he's done as revealed in Scripture. But it wasn't Paul doing it. He cooperated as God worked in him. So he couldn't even take credit for this work. He says, hey, God's working mightily in me. God really only works mightily, doesn't he? You go, well, God's work was kind of weak that day. You know, kind of, eh. He was a bit off his game. Never. God's working is always mighty. And it was mighty in Paul by the grace of God as he humbled himself before God in obedience before him. I can't do that. You can't do that in your flesh. But through the Spirit, we can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens us. He's the one who enables us to do those things because it's Him doing it. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The Colossians, like the Galatians, they were in danger of turning aside from the true gospel in exchange for another that could not save. It was powerless. And there's, there's things that we learn as we begin to follow Jesus. And, 
and one thing is the value of the scripture that we cannot deviate from the word of God, the truth of the Bible. And, and not all videos, books, and, and ministries that claim to speak truth, do, they don't come with warning labels. We don't know what, it's not like MEK, where you could look at the back of it and say, what's the material safety data sheet say about this, and how should I handle it? There's no warnings for anything. However, God's given us warning in his word, and he's shown us what's the right way to go to the head, Jesus Christ. And as we begin to learn more, this is a hard lesson for us to learn, is that we need to remain teachable at the same time. So once you have learned the gospel, we need to be teachable when there is those course corrections required because we're not perfect. We do make mistakes. We can be deceived. And that's why he says, I I warn everyone, you know, Jesus in you, the hope of glory. He's the one we need in light of Scripture That's how we correct our course. I love that. God is the hope of glory, glory out of our lives. That God could get glory from the life of a person. Glory out of suffering. That God could get glory out of our suffering. Glory after the death of the body. After this body dies, I mean, what glory is is there to be had? But God will glorify us by His grace and that there's glory in heaven forever through Jesus. Jesus is the hope of glory. He's the only one who provides forgiveness, reconciliation, and salvation. Jesus said, come unto me, and I will give rest for your souls. You don't have to go to anyone else but to Jesus, because he's the one who hears and he who answers. He is the head. And it's him that we glorify. Jesus is the end of religious bureaucracy, of uh, futilely working for salvation or for wisdom, paying our dues. Jesus has paid it all. And we come to him in faith. Don't settle for anything less than Jesus, the hope of glory, Christ in you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so awesome in all your ways, that you've sent Jesus to be our Savior He's the one who speaks to us. You've given us the Word, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you for giving us all that we need to be saved through Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you that all things have been made by Him and through Him. Lord, help us never to to forget who Jesus is for us and to, to lean on our own understanding or to think that we are are something when we're nothing. Thank you that Jesus is everything for us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, open the eyes of our hearts to see when there are deceptions that we need to be aware of, where we've started going astray. Lord, it's easy to, to point fingers or to think that others have it wrong and we or I have it right. But Lord, you are the righteous one. You are the one who is glorious and holy. You're the one who has washed us and called us and ordained us to be your ministers. And I pray that we would do so knowing your will, being faithful servants, even in suffering, Lord, that you would be glorified. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Uphold us with your strength. Fill us with your spirit. Go before us in power that as we humble ourselves before you, your mighty works would be seen by all for your glory. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.